John, there was this amazing basketball player. If people have been around for a long time, they may know about him. He was in the NBA Hall of Fame. His name was Calvin Murphy. Hmm. He is five feet, eight inches tall. And there was talk that he could jump so high that he could take a dollar bill off the top of a backboard. Wow. So one day he's in a gym and some people see him and they say, you know, Calvin, we heard this story that you can actually, at 5'8", take a dollar off the backboard. Can you do it? And Calvin said, no, but I can take a 50. (laughs) And it kind of leads to the question of, do you have to be inclined to get the most out of yourself in a pursuit? Do you have to be a natural salesman in order to sell? Because at five foot eight, you're not thinking that Calvin Murphy is a natural candidate to go into the NBA, let alone get to the Hall of Fame. Right. But through constant practice, Mm. he got to the top of the backboard and he had an amazing college career at Niagara. And then he got to the NBA Hall of Fame. And so what do you think about that question? Are salesmen born Mm. or can they be trained? The concept of whether you're a natural salesperson or it's something that only a few select people get to do or you have to be an extrovert to be good in sales is not one that I um, agree with. In fact, after I give a keynote talk sometimes and people go, wow, you're a natural speaker. And I thought, oh, you have no idea how much effort and training and coaching I've done to come across as a natural speaker. Thank you, but though, but I, you know, and the same thing is true of, of salespeople. It's a skill set like anything else. And we all have to sell ourselves all the time. You have to sell yourself to get hired. You have to sell yourself to get a date. We're always sell, even the kids sell their parents all the time to get me this, get me that. And so this concept of getting rid of sales as a profession is only a used car salesman. Therefore, I don't want to do that. And therefore I'm not a salesperson. When you let go of that and open it up to, oh, the best salespeople are storytellers and storytelling is in our DNA. We used to sit around the glow of campfires during the caveman days. And you realize that it is part of your makeup in every single person who enjoys stories and you can learn to tell stories. And when you have that skill set, then you quote, are a natural salesperson. So you can teach me to sell. Yes, I can teach you to sell through teaching you how to be a storyteller through a structure that lets people see what you're selling as a solution to their problem because you've told a story that makes it so memorable and compelling that they must have it. I take that for a yes. Yes. (laughs) Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. And you're about to hear a landmark moment in my life. The moment the wall finally came down. This has nothing to do with Donald Trump's wall, the Berlin Wall, or any physical wall. It's the wall that was put up in journalism many years ago between church and state. On one side were the editorial folks. On the other side, the sales and marketing folks. If you are a writer or an editor, you are told never to cross to the other side of the wall. Don't even think about it. If you're seen over there, you'll be tarnished and shunned and you'll never be respected again. And as you'll hear my guest today say in a little while, on the business side, they were told not to cavort with the writers and editors lest they contaminate the entire process. My guest today is John Livesey, once Salesman of the Year at Condé Nast. The two of us are going to look at what happened to that old world wall after social media changed everything. Now, here I am, longtime writer, doing a podcast. Feeling very close to my sponsors. 
As you know, I only work with advertisers whose products I use. And that's why the interview you were about to hear was done at WeWork. The hoodie I'm wearing as I speak these words into a microphone was made by Sportique and the bracelet around my wrist that is encouraging me to lift my business to new heights is from my intent. Starting next week, you'll be getting discounts on those bracelets, discounts on those Sportique hoodies and sweatpants and comfy tees and discounts on office space at WeWork. And you know what? I feel great that I can lead you to those discounts. I love going to WeWork because when I walk into one, I never know who I'm going to meet. All you got to do is go get a cup of water from that transparent tank that's elegantly stocked with citrus and cantaloupe. And there's a chance you're going to get into a conversation with someone you never met. Makes me feel like I did when I was traveling around the world, waking up with a sense that I was going to meet the unexpected. They say we work is where company meets community. You rent workspace there and you're at home. But it's home with infinite possibilities. Check it out at wework.com. And I love wearing my sportique hoodies and sweats because they're my definition of comfort. It's already become a ritual for me to wear sportique when I record these intros, and it makes perfect sense. I want to be as comfortable as I possibly can when I'm in front of my Zoom H6 recorder. Hmm, you know... I ought to talk to Zoom about them becoming a sponsor to this podcast because I'm comfortable with that Zoom recorder. And I can remember how uncomfortable I was at the start when Tim Ferriss first implored me to do this podcast. I didn't know how to record audio to send around the world. The difference between that uncomfortability and my level of comfort now is stunning. And that comfort gives me confidence. And you know what? That's what you can get from clothing made by Sportique. You're going to put on that hoodie or those sweatpants and be more confident simply because you're comfortable. Check them out at Sportique.com. That's Sportique, S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com. In my intent, I never used to be one of those guys who wore bracelets or earrings or necklaces or rings. And as I think about it, each of those items says something about you. A wedding ring tells people you're married. A college ring tells people where you went to school. If you're lucky enough to have a sporting championship ring, it tells people what you've accomplished. A necklace can tell people your religion or simply be an indication of your sense of style. A My Intent bracelet stands out from all of them because it not only speaks to the outside world, but it guides your future. You think of a word that describes where you want to go in life and have it chiseled on a token that you wrap around your wrist with a beautiful band. Every time you look at that bracelet, you're reminded of where you want to go. It's a spiritual guide, a mantra that you're projecting through your wrist. Check it out at myintent.org and see how such a small investment can take you such a long way. I'm so happy to let you know about these companies because the wall is down. My editorial work is only enhanced because of the great companies I'm working with. The writer and the salesman finally got together. And after you listen to my next hour with John Livesey, you'll see why I'll never be the same. Here we go. John, it's so wonderful to be with you. Every time I sit down with you, 
I learn so much, and there seems to be no ceiling to it. <laughs> so let's just get to a, a starting point, and that being for years, I was told you never go near a salesman, you never go near a marketer, you're a journalist, and you stay on your side of the wall. And here I am learning that we are like yin and yang. Mm -hmm. And while I, actually I was, I did spend some time writing at GQ and you were selling advertising for Condé Nast. Correct. We were in the same proximity. And the salespeople were told, it's church and state, do not bother or talk to a journalist about anything your clients are interested in or want. Because God forbid a car advertiser would ask a fashion journalist to do a fashion shoot with the cars, and there is the whole, they lose all journalistic integrity. So we understand why these rules came into play. Yes, but it siloed people that could have really started to communicate in completely different ways. And I do have to say that Condé Nast has seen the light and it has something called 23 Stories, which is how many stories they had at the One World Trade Center for, for all the different brands, where the editors are starting to create content for advertisers that's not their ad, but it is something related. So they're trusting the editors to create sponsored content now because advertising is more and more difficult to break through the clutter. But that's a very new phenomena of letting editors and salespeople collaborate. So when you got started, what what years are we talking about? What decade are we talking about? Because <laughs> I think we would start at about the same time. Yes. Well, um, let's see. My first print job was for the American Film Institute in the early 90s. And then I went to work for Jan Wenner, who owned Rolling Stone and Us Magazine. I have a funny story about that. We took some clients to lunch and I, the two reps from Rolling Stone and us often went on sales calls together trying to get the movie studios to promote their movies in the magazine. And the Rolling Stone rep had made the lunch reservation. And we were sitting at this nice table at a nice restaurant. And the um, maitre d' came over and he said, um, when is Mick Jagger coming? And we're like, what? <laughs> He's not coming. They're like, you said this was the Rolling Stones reservation. Oh, magazine. We literally had to hold up a magazine or we would have been thrown out. <laughs> so <laughs> talk about church and state. Uh, and then in the mid-90s, I started my career at Conde Nast and was there um, all the way through 2008. And then, of course, the housing market crashed. And that caused luxury advertising to take a dive. And I got laid off. And... Um, had to reinvent myself and learn how to sell digital ads, which was the Daily Beast, which luckily for me was owned by Barry Diller and Tina Brown was the editor of the Daily Beast and she had been at Condé Nast both at the New Yorker and Vanity Fair. So once I um, had learned how to sell digital, two years later Condé Nast asked me to come back and I ended up winning. Now you were the expert. Yes, because I could sell print and digital and I ironically ended up winning salesperson of the year for Condé Nast, not just for the magazine, but for the entire company. So my journey has not only been a career journey, but also um, a life journey of I'm the same person whether I'm being laid off or winning an award at the same company. And that aha moment for me was life-changing. That has really got to mess with your head to in the moments where you're getting laid off, mm -hmm. Many people feel like they're having their integrity, integrity stripped or everything, their dignity. Right. Were you able to process that in the moment and realize, look, this is not about me. Mm. This is about 2008. <laughs> well, you know, Cal, that's a fascinating question because I have to go back to when I was in high school in the Midwest suburbs and I was a lifeguard. And as a lifeguard, you're trained, don't panic, stay calm. And that really helped me in that moment when I got that phone call saying, you've been laid off. We know you've been here over 15 years. You've got to clean out your office in 24 hours. And I said, well, don't you want a report that would give you the status of which ads are scheduled to run and on what page? And the publisher said, well, that would be amazing. But all the other people that were having to lay off in all the outside offices and 30% of the New York staff are so mad 
They're just storming out. And I said, I'm not going to do that to the clients. There's one more person out there to save. <laughs> You're still the lifeguard. Yes. And I, you know, I watched my clients get married and have kids, and I had long-term relationships with them. So I was able to stay calm and think of somebody else, even though my world was turning upside down at the time. And that one decision to leave that status report is what allowed me to get rehired back two years later. Man. All right, let's take this back to the beginning. Did you know that you were a salesman from the time you were seven years old? <laughs> well, I knew I loved communication. And I used to watch a TV show called Bewitched. That oh, Elizabeth her... Montgomery. Yes. And she used to twinkle, twinkle her nose. Twinkle her nose. And she was married to this advertising guy. Ah, Darren. Darren Stevens. And I thought as a kid he had the coolest job ever. He got to present new ideas to clients. I didn't even know it was sales. I just thought, that would be really fun. So I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And I had a paper I've route. I've never heard of anybody who wanted to grow up to be like Darren. Darren Stevens. Yeah, wow. that was my Amazing. motivation. Okay. Um, like beautiful house. Yeah, had a pretty wife. Right. The whole yeah. shebang. His, you know, life was fun and creative. It looked like. But my first real sales experience was as a paperboy. I would literally have to go door to door and knock on people's house and convince them to subscribe to the paper. And then I was the one getting up and delivering it at six in the morning in the suburbs of Chicago in those winters. And then and I would be- you had to collect. At the end of the month, right. I would- So that was my first entrepreneurial experience of sell it, deliver it, and handle the money. You know, it's so funny. I was a delivery boy too. Mm-hmm. Only- I didn't think so much of the selling. <laughs> My feeling was we had an afternoon newspaper on Long Island called Newsday. Mm -hmm. And my feeling was if I deliver the papers, I'm basically going to get to see Newsday before anybody else. And I can sit there and read it. <laughs> you wanted the inside want, scoop as that, a journalist that, even that, then. That's right. Yeah. That's funny. Well, and then when I was at University of Illinois, um, I took a job working for the Daily Illini newspaper, selling ads. And that looked like knocking on the local pizza parlor, saying, you know, students obviously eat pizza. Why don't you run an ad? And put a coupon in. Back then, you know, we're talking 1979, uh, 80. That was revolutionary. What? You can actually measure the ad? Well, if you put a coupon in, people would cut it out and bring it in, and we can keep track of how many people buy a coupon or use the coupon to, that would should more than recoup the cost of your ad and maybe even more. And when I was in college, I used those coupons. <laughs> yes. So that was my first experience selling advertising. And, and the guy was write a check for the ad out of his personal checking account. So it had to work. At that point, do you know, this is what I want to do? Actually, no. I took a little bit of a detour. After I graduated, I... Um, what university is this? University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. I um, took a trip. Back then, you could travel around the world in this Pan Am ticket that cost very little money. I as remember long as you, that, around the world. Oh, yes, as long as you didn't. And I came back you after that. You had to stay that. in the same direction. Same you direction, exactly. Backwards. You couldn't backtrack. So right. I was literally sitting with the travel agent and a globe figuring out how I was going to map that out. Um, well, but when it I was came, like 2000 bucks. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. Good memory. Um, and I stayed in hostels and stuff like that. And I came back and I thought, I don't know that I want my career to be focused on selling toilet paper or whatever the product might be at an ad agency. So I decided to move to San Francisco. And back then, Steve Jobs had started Apple Computer. And you could be in your 20s and get into technology. And, and I just had a feeling it was gonna be the next thing. And they were doing commercials with Dick Cavett on the radio saying, get a computer at your home to put your recipes on because there was no internet. <laughs> uh, but then I, I thought that's, that's what I wanna get into is technology. So I was hired by um, Control Data and a company called Amdahl that Fujitsu owned. We were selling multi-million dollar mainframe computers competing against IBM, which used to sell with something called FUD. Have you heard that term? No, I never heard FUD. If you buy anything that's not IBM, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and it breaks down, and they did back then, you'll be fired. 
<laughs> so imagine having to counter that FUD selling of, yes, the point fingers that were the problem versus them. But if right. it's an all IBM shop, we'll fix it and you won't get fired. Nobody gets fired for, so you could have a product that was faster and less expensive and they still wouldn't buy it because of FUD. Whoa, you know, interesting. Cause I remember my dad worked for IBM mm -hmm. and the motto was think. He used to bring home these pads mm -hmm. and think on it. And then it got flipped upside on them when Steve Jobs and Apple came up with the campaign of think differently. Exactly. Or think different, I'm right. sorry, there's no L-Y. And so you see how quickly oh, yes. things move when you look back, mm -hmm. but, but in the moment. Right, you just, well, you realize technology is happening fast, but not at the rate it's happening now. So the training I got selling multi-million dollar mainframe computers of how to talk to financial people, tech people. What's it like to sell a multi-million dollar computer? Well, I was selling to companies like TRW that needed that kind of computing power to keep track of everyone's credit scores or the airlines to monitor which flights and crew is the best combination to maximize revenue. So how, how, like how many millions of dollars? Is oh, some of them would be three to five to $10 million. And it would take three to five years sometimes for the decision process to go that long. So it's a very long-term sale. And you have to constantly be moving the ball on the field and realize where you are and what's the obstacle and um, being aware of. You know, it's funny, even then I started using stories to sell because I would call on these engineers that had plastic pocket holders with all the pens. I remember. And I did not have an engineering background and yet I had to communicate to them. And I would say, you know, you need to buy more disk storage because it's a lot like the closet at home with all those clothes crammed in, you can't find anything. And that's what your data is. It's all crammed together and it's not running fast. And if we get you more space, it'll flow better like a closet, not having so many clothes in it. And they're like, oh, all right. Let so I was already using analogies back then to get people to start seeing a need for something. How important is visualization in sales? I tell people that the key to being successful in sales is paint a picture and that whoever tells the best story gets the yes. And see, this is where our overlap is mm -hmm. because I was on the other side of the wall yes, trying to tell the best story, mm -hmm. except we weren't allowed to shake hands or go out, <laughs> right. or go out for a drink afterward. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of amazed that as you're walking me through this trajectory, I mean, it seems like you're learning different things along the way. I still would like to know what it feels like to sell a $5 million product, to get that handshake, yes. to see the ink on the contract, 5 million bucks. It feels as great. And it also feels like a team effort. And I know that might seem cliche, but if I've learned anything, you, nobody sells alone. And I think that's Nobody sells alone. Yeah, I, and I think as a journalist, you realize there's so many things and people that go into creating a great story. Wow, I could you could say the same thing, even though as a writer- You might win the Pulitzer, but you didn't do it alone. You are in a room alone, mm -hmm. and you think you're alone because it's you and the keys, but then it goes to an editor, mm -hmm. and then there's a managing editor who's got to get it into mm -hmm. the system, and then there's an art director and- and PR Photo, gets involved. PR. Yeah. yeah, so it's the same principles. It is. It teaches you impulse control, and it teaches you perseverance when you're selling something with that long of a sales cycle to not give up and to see the end results. You talk about visualizing that that's going to happen and realizing that um, there's a lot of obstacles along the way because you can have somebody who's in your corner, and then they go to another job, and you got to start all over again. And so you start pushing the ball up the hill in a different way. And that was my big aha moment was realizing when you get obstacles, you don't give up and you hit the reset button time and again. And you know, after selling those computers for so long, I went into working for an ad agency, creating TV commercials for movies coming out on home video. I met someone who owned a small agency boutique I said, oh, I majored in advertising, but I went into technology instead. And he goes, oh, I've been looking for somebody who wants to sell 
our creative work as opposed to do the creative work. And I can't find somebody and you have the sales background. And I said, it's Darren Stevens all over again. Oh, man. I get to take a sizzle reel of a commercial you did for Batman coming out on home video from Warner Brothers to Disney to say, hire us to do your next commercial for Outrageous Fortune with Bette Midler and Shelley Long. So that job seems so creative and exciting to me that I left my Fortune 500 job, went to work for this small agency, and started calling on the studios, and I was in heaven. And I learned, Cal, the benefits of storytelling through that, because we had to edit down a two-hour movie into a 30-second commercial. And you have to really tell a story, sometimes a 15-second commercial, to get people to go want to rent that video if they hadn't seen it in the movies or they'd seen it and loved it. And we would reposition the movie sometimes if it hadn't been successful theatrically. We had a Madonna movie that didn't do so well in the movie theaters, but we edited it like it was an MTV commercial and aired it on MTV, and it did great in terms of rentals. Uh, Lethal Weapon was a huge play video that people kept renting and renting and renting and gave Warner Brothers the idea, of, do you think anybody would ever want to buy these? So we sent a camera crew to Blockbuster when that existed and interviewed people like they were coming out of a movie theater instead of a video store saying, how many times have you rented it? What did you like about it? So I learned about voiceover Smart. and music and editing a commercial together of and what makes a great story from all of that. And then from there, I started my career in magazine. And I thought to myself, I've had three separate careers and none of it's going to intersect. And then what happened was they said, hey, um, there's this thing called the internet. And our clients, our advertisers are all going to have websites, and we're going to have a website. Does anybody know anything about technology here at the magazine? And I'd raise my hand. I do. And then shortly after that, you know, we're stopping putting fashion models on the cover. We're going to put celebrities on. Does anybody have any background in entertainment? Oh, man. So suddenly, these three separate things have all connected together, which allowed me to come up with really fun ideas like doing an event with the TV Academy, celebrating how fashion has influenced uh, television shows back and forth. Uh, and then we did a whole series. The, now, the problem we're solving, because in sales, you're always solving a problem. The TV Academy said, ratings for the Emmys are going down. How do we fix that? And they said, what if we did something with a fashion magazine that promoted people who got nominated for best costume design? Maybe that would help get some awareness. Entertainment Tonight would might pick it up. And so I had to, quote, audition against other fashion magazines, why our magazine would be better and what the idea was. I also had a jewelry company called Platinum Guild that wanted people to not just wear platinum jewelry for weddings, but on the red carpet. So it was the perfect merger of connecting those dots. And so I said to the TV Academy, what if we create a supplement? And you had used this word earlier, what if? It's the start to all the imagination stuff. And we'll show Dick Van Dyke's show with Mary Tyler Moore in the Capri Pants to the Dynasty shoulder pads, to the, what the kids on Friends wore, to Will and Grace had just come out. And we would open our archives and you could open your archives and our editors would work together to create this supplement and the ads would be platinum jewelry designers and we would put that inside the magazine. And that's how they picked us and it worked out wonderfully. We got all kinds of press. In fact, the Today Show interviewed our editor who wrote the piece, wearing platinum jewelry on camera, might add, uh, the first product placement kind of thing. And they took the clips of the shows that we had shown in print and brought that to life right before the Emmys aired. So everything you've just told me goes against the stereotype of the salesman who has got the pitch and he's just going to drill that pitch in you to get them to buy what the salesman wants. What you just described to me was a creative process that could be seen as creating a story. It is a story, yes. And again, all good stories, as you know, have problems to solve. So that's your job as a salesperson, because there's got to be some obstacle or challenge in a, in a story, or otherwise it's not interesting. So the Emmys needed the ratings to go up, and the Platinum Guild had a problem that people weren't wearing jewelry except for weddings. And when you bring those two problems together and create this win-win, we get exclusive advertising, they get exposure, and the Emmys ratings were the highest they'd been in five years after that aired. So, but, you know, Maslow said, if the only tool in your toolbox is a hammer, you tend to go around looking for a nail to hit. And in sales, if the only tool in your toolbox to get a yes is push, 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 then that's the old way of selling, and it doesn't work anymore. When did push turn into pull? 
I think it's evolving. And that's what made me want to write Better Selling Through Storytelling was to get people to first be aware that the old way doesn't work and that you need to pull people in. And the salespeople go, okay. You say Plato said storytellers rule the world. So that appeals to the aggressive, competitive nature of salespeople. Rule the world if I tell stories. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm in that, that's how I get them in as opposed to, I'm not a journalist. I don't tell stories. But if you want to rule the world, Plato said it, it's still true. This is the new way to pull people in because the old way is not working and you're burning out doing it, by the way, with a hammer. All right, so then how do I tell a story? And then that starts to go, all right. And then once people start telling stories and then they start going, oh, you're solving burnout. You're solving being seen as a commodity because I don't care if you're a salesperson selling magazine advertising like I was. They would, Lexus would literally have media day and it would be rep after rep. First W, then Vogue, then Vanity Fair, and everybody's coming in hour after hour, pitching a bunch of numbers. And people are like, oh, it all blurs together. But whoever came in with the best story and the painting the picture, what if we did this with you? What if we, you know, then, oh, now I'm interested because you're telling me a story. And guess what? At the end of that media day, that's who they remember. They remember the story. Yeah, well, I always cite this quote from Yuval Noah Harari, it begins the book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Humans think in stories rather than in facts, numbers, or equations. Mm -hmm. And the simpler the story, the better. <laughs> right, because you want a story to be so memorable that you can then tell your friend about it. And then there's the whole word of mouth that happens, and that's the whole goal of really good creative content that is now known as advertising. Why do so many salesmen, it seems to me, and these are salesmen who don't seem to get my business, mm -hmm. just try to sell me the features. Mm. Like if I go in to buy a car, <laughs> they're telling me like how many horsepower it has. Mm -hmm. They're just loading me up with all these statistics that is it really going to make a difference if it's 492 mm. horsepower or 468? I think the biggest reason people sell features is that's what their comfort zone is, information. And they're not aware that people buy emotionally and then back it up with logic. And so once that awareness starts to happen, then they say, all right, so how do I create a story? And I give examples because I've spoken to a lot of car companies over the years. And I'll say, instead of saying that window is three inches thick, say the magic phrase is, and what that means to you is because that forces you to follow that up with the benefit statement. That window is three inches thick. And what that means to you is, hi, Cal, is um, when you've got your music playing, you're gonna feel like you're inside the Disney hall and all those traffic noises can't come in. Wouldn't that be great? Feeling. And if I'm selling you a sports car, I don't go about miles per gallon. I say, if you're buying this red Ferrari, think how sexy you're gonna feel and how powerful and, and like you own the world. Don't you want to have that feeling every time you get behind the wheel? This is the car for you. You're buying a, an emotion, not a statistic. What would you say is the percentage of people who sell off emotion and who sell off facts? I would say 10% sell emotionally with stories. Whoa. And 90% are still using the old way. And guess what? Those 10% that are selling with stories are the top 10% producers. And people look at them going, I don't know what they do. <laughs> What's the secret sauce? What are they saying? Is it calling on more people? Is it they have a better territory? Is it their product <laughs> is cheaper than mine? What is it? How come they're beating me every time? Because they just keep looking at the numbers. Yes. And it works. You know, I've worked with um, architecture firms. And it's the same thing. As I mentioned, they have, you know, clients will say, we're going to build a skyscraper. We're going to remodel an airport. Come on in. Whoever gets this job, this is now we're talking billions of dollars at stake, not millions. And so to help a client get a remodeling of an airport that's a five-year project that's in the billions of dollars, and they still pitch the exact same way that I was pitching when I was pitching an ad in a magazine, it's like you have an hour. You can have as many people in the room as you want speak to the decision makers. And then after you will be another firm with their design and their pitch. And we, you're in the top three, go. 
And so they brought me in as their secret weapon after hearing my keynote on getting to yes and getting to irresistible because what I found was happening was I said, okay, what's your opening sound like? Thank you very much for this opportunity. We're excited <laughs> oh, no, to be here. No. I said, that's what everybody says. <laughs> oh, man. So I dug around in the stories and I said, all right. Um, all right, your CEO has tasked you from getting this airport ranked from number 24 to number one in five years. And we know how to do it because we've done it for JFK and we're going to do it for you here in Toronto. Much different opening. Yeah. And it, you know what? It's the same as a writing a story. Yeah, you, you if you with can't open in. with the first exactly. sentence that's going to gra grab people by yes. the lapels and get them in, yep. you're in trouble. You're in big trouble. Now, every presentation typically will show a team slide. If you hire us versus the other architects you're looking at, here's the team that you'd be working with. And I said, okay, what do you say at that on this slide? My name is Joe. I've been here 12 years. I'm in charge of this. Here's Sue. My name is Sue. Oh, I do no, this. That's what no, I'm like, oh my God. No, so no. I sat down with each of them individually and I pulled out a story for each person. When I was 11 years old, I used to play with Legos. That's what inspired me to become an architect. Now I have a son that's 11. I still play with Legos and I bring that same passion to my job. Hi, my name is Sue. I used to be in the Israeli army before I came to work here. And I bring that same discipline and focus to make sure this thing comes on time and under budget. Guess who won? <laughs> they were memorable. We want to work with that right. team. Well, that's the thing about stories. Yes. And in, in, in fact, stories are probably over history the most memorable things that we have. Mm -hmm. And so it's amazing to me that they are, are, seem to be underutilized. It's a lack of awareness. You know, these architecture firms have amazing graphic design, marketing departments, PR departments, and no sales training. So hence no storytelling training. And a lot of sales training hasn't incorporated storytelling because they didn't understand the connection. And once you understand the connection and see it, it totally changes your outcome, but it changes how you see yourself. You become magnetic. If your goal is to be a magnetic storyteller as opposed to a pushy salesperson, you, your mindset completely changes on how you think about yourself and the energy you have getting up in the morning to go do your job. Okay, how do you, do, how do you make that transformation? If, if somebody is the old school salesman yes. and they want to turn themselves into the salesman of tomorrow, mm -hmm. what do they do? First of all, they have to realize the, the importance of storytelling. They have to realize how to tell a good story and then they have to realize that their whole purpose for getting up in the morning is to become a magnetic storyteller so that they can feel good about their interactions and realize that once they have the great story and are willing to do the work to craft the story, as you know from writing. Process. Process and practice the story and not wing it. Because no, you know, uh, famous actors don't get in front of the camera winging it, and famous athletes don't get out on the field winging it, and yet salespeople think, I'm just going to wing this pitch and wonder why the results aren't there. So this is so similar <laughs> to writing because there, in my mind, there's no winging it in writing. Right? <laughs> no. Writing is rewriting. Going through everything you went through to, to this time, it's like a completely new day. Mm -hmm. We can sit here on this podcast mm -hmm. where basically there's a Zoom recorder between us that fits in a little box that's <laughs> no, not much longer than a, a foot tall by a foot wide. And that's basically a radio station that gets me to Mongolia. And you think back of how big those computer rooms were that storing all those computers in the 80s, the size of, you know, 10 football fields. So what does this mean for us to know each other and now to have no walls mm. between us? Where does this have the possibility of going? Because now my mind is in a completely different place about sales. Mm -hmm. I want to learn how to sell. Great. I want to sell. And I believe that just knowing what I know about interviewing people, mm -hmm. if I apply that, exactly. I'm part of the way there. If I apply what I know about telling a story, 
I'm further along mm-hmm. the way there. Much. But I've never closed the deal. Got it. Where, what so is, what does that feel like? What does that feel like? You're 100% right that your journalistic skills as an interviewer and a storyteller are going to allow you to become a salesperson. But first, you start with the mindset of, I'm a different kind of salesperson. I went through this when I was talking with Anthem Insurance. They had nurses and MBAs, and they were asking them to start selling for the first time because everything's being disrupted. Whoa. We're not asking a them. nurse has to sell now. Yeah, we're not asking you to get the contract, but we're asking you to sell our data versus the doctor's data to keep the patient out of the hospital so our rates don't go up. And the minute that they would get an objection from the doctor that that they didn't agree with the data, the nurse hadn't been trained in selling, I don't know how to handle objections. They would just say, okay, and walk out because they didn't understand it was a conversation. And they said, so we need them to start selling, but they they didn't go to school to be a salesperson and they don't want to be a salesperson. And I said, how about if we ask them to become storytellers? And the light bulb went on. They said, oh my God, I bet they'd be willing to do that. And you can do that and get the results we need? Yes. And that's how I pulled them in. So when you tell a good story of someone you've helped that was just like you, and now what? how great their life is after using your product or hiring you as a keynote speaker, how you transform that company by helping them ask the Cal questions, then your closing question simply sounds like, does that sound like the kind of journey you'd like to go on with me? That's that's it. That's it. That's your closing that's question because you've told a story about a journey that you took someone else on. You're the Sherpa climbing up Mount Everest and the clients, the person, you're Yoda in the story of Star and, Wars. And yet, look, every when you go to a movie, there's Mr. Miyagi mm-hmm. and there's the Karate Kid. Yes. And... The, the hero, Mr. Miyagi cannot be the hero. Mr. Miyagi yes. is the guide. And that's what you have to realize as a salesperson. Your ego is checked at the door. You're not the hero of the story. Your client you helped is the hero of the story. That And that's huge for a lot of companies that I talk to about mm-hmm. storytelling because they completely think they're the heroes. Yes. And that's why when you start talking about we've been in business this many years this is what we do, you were losing people. There's nothing in it for them. But a good story says, we saw people just like you struggling with X, Y, and Z, and we decided we were gonna solve that problem. And that's what gets us up every day. That's our mission. That's very different than, we're just here to make a lot of money and sell widgets. So actually, the close is something I should not be fearful of. No, it's like landing an airplane. Like when, well, you know, I never land. <laughs> I'd like, be but, a little scared landing an but, airplane. Let me give you the analogy. So you're flying from here to New York. You've right. done it many times, I'm sure. When they make the announcement, um, we're now landing. Please put your seats up. No one stands up and goes, what? <laughs> we're landing the plane? I thought we were just going to fly around forever. And the same thing is true when you ask a closing question. No one goes, oh my God, we're not just going to be friends and talk for months and months and months. You're never going to ask me to say yes or no. It's, it's like landing a plane from a standpoint of it's expected. And it can be as smooth as a, a landing because you've taken them on this journey and they're deciding. You can say questions like, well, where do you think we should go from here? And let them be a co-pilot with you. See, the plane analogy really holds up. Wow. Now, here, here's the thing. As I'm listening to this, I find that I do this a lot in interviewing where mm-hmm. when I walk into the interview, yes. I have 200 questions in my head. <laughs> I like to use the analogy of a jukebox. Hmm. It's like there's songs in my head that when the person I'm interviewing is speaking, they're ultimately going to hit the button <laughs> on a question that's already there. Nice. Or maybe a new song needs to be invented and that's going to come out as well. But those questions are up there and it enables me to rip up the pad Mm -hmm. because what I don't want to have is a pad that has questions one to 200 that I'm going to walk in saying question one, Mm -hmm. question two, because I want this to be fluid and I know the best results I'm going to get are probably with the follow-up questions. <laughs> well, two things jump out at me from what you just said. One is my favorite quote from Arthur Ashe, which is the key to success is confidence, and the key to confidence is preparation. So those 200 questions that you prepare 
give you the confidence to be so successful. Then the second part is when I've heard Meryl Streep talk about acting, she's not checking the script when she's on the set. She's got the lines in her head already so that she can be in the moment and react to whatever happens while the camera's rolling. Very different than line. <laughs> yeah, she's playing instead of thinking. Mm -hmm. And so it's you're being instead of doing. And, and so here I am, I go into the interview, the jukebox is there. Yeah. They're hitting the jukebox. And so I am naturally knowing when is the right time to ask the question mm -hmm. or something else is coming up and this may be something that's centered in the gut. I, I know that there is a question I don't want to ask early on. Maybe it's like the, you don't want to make your closing question exactly. come three minutes into, into the sales mm -hmm. pitch. You want it to be toward the end. Right. Well, you bring up a really interesting point here, Cal. Sales are lost at the beginning of the selling, not the end. Oh, man. And most people think, oh, I just didn't, you know, because if I you're- I didn't close it. I had, I I had to- Yeah. And you lost it at the beginning, not at the end. Because you can't be all warm and rapport building and telling stories. And then suddenly you change your personality and go, okay, so you want to buy? So you get you know, little check-in moments throughout the whole journey. Does that make sense to you? Would you agree that this is this? And they start nodding their head like you just did. And so they're already in this mindset of, I trust this guy. I like this person. I am getting, I can see myself in these stories he's telling you. I think I'm gonna do this and if I can afford it. And then you know, you're anticipating all those other things. So you are the master of questions. Your jukebox is completely full of what you would ask somebody so you would know that you are the perfect, let's say keynote speaker for them. What you may not, have at the moment that you want to add to your jukebox are the questions they're going to ask you that are called objections in selling. How old well, your price is too high, anything you can do about that, um, whatever else. That, How do you think about that? I see, I, yeah, it's something I haven't really encountered. Right, because objections are just buying signals and most salespeople get afraid of them and run away from it. But if you look at them, like nobody is going to spend the time asking me about contract negotiations or pricing or whatever else it is where this isn't the right time unless they're interested. So you look at it as a buying signal. So that's a mindset change as opposed to being defensive. All your listening skills as an expert journalist kick in again. And you become curious and put your empathy hat on as to what is the real unspoken question going on here. It might look like price, but it's probably something else. Whoa. See, that would probably throw me off because I would hear them say something about price and my mind would go straight to price. Mm -hmm. But I got to think underneath that. Exactly. What's, what's really going on yeah. here? Is there fear, uncertainty, and doubt? That this, you know, that the, you know, if I change vendors, my boss is going to be mad because he plays golf with the other vendor. There could be so many oh, other- they could be telling you the price is too high, mm -hmm. even if it has nothing to do with the yes. price. Yes. And that I've never dealt with. Right. Well, that's, um, you probably have dealt with it in a form of someone giving you an answer, whether it's a politician or a celebrity you've interviewed, that you know in your gut is not the real answer to the question uh, okay. you want. Good, good point. Good so point. you have the skills to trust and read people's body language and tone of voice and ask another question in a different way. So you could something, sometimes it's something as simple as, if price were not an objection, would you want to do this? Oh, I love that. I love that. And then that. they go, well, no, there's some other things too. Well, let's get them all out on the table. And at that point is what you're doing the most authentic because we're now talking about whether you're going to buy this product or not. Yes. Well, let's make it even more personal. And it's like, you're selling yourself as a keynote speaker. And why are you worth the fee that you get? because you're so passionate and so convinced from all the successful talks you've given that you know you can help these people and you know you're worth every penny and then some, that you're almost a bargain. So that's what gives you the confidence to realize that I'm here to help you solve a problem. If you don't have a problem, you don't need to hire me as a keynote speaker. 
But if you do, if your people don't know how to ask good questions and so they don't get asked uh, into the CEO level because the CEO doesn't want to hear a pitch, uh, my people listen to pitches and the salespeople don't know how to, but you can help them ask better questions to get better answers, to get better sales, because they under, here's the secret, remember? The better you understand the problem, the more the client thinks you have the solution. How do you understand the problem better than anyone else? By asking better questions, enter Cal. Now, what happens if somebody legitimately really wants this, mm -hmm. but they only have a limited amount of money? What, what do you? Well, then you start you negotiating, right? You okay. say, you know, am I busy that time? What's the cost of me not of me saying uh, yes to this job? Because I'm a big believer in life that who we say no to is more important than who we say yes to. So if I say yes to someone who wants to hire me as a keynote speaker for a reduced fee. Then when I get another call at my fee, I'm not available. How much is that costing me? Or what else can they do? Do you know some other people? Can I, will you pay to have this film for me? Will you buy X number of my books? What else can we add to the mix to make this worth me so doing? So again, it? now it's creativity. Yes. At what point does creativity run out <laughs> and you're saying, you know what? I guess it's not going to work. Well, I think the more you know yourself and the more you know your value of whatever it is you're selling, then you have to trust that even if you don't see another sale on the horizon, that something new is coming in as well. And no now doesn't mean no forever. It just means we're not a fit right now. Mm. So is there a certain way to conclude that kind of meeting so that you can always walk over that bridge. In fact, you right. plan on walking over that bridge mm -hmm. 30 days, 60 days into right. the future. Well, if, if it's, um, they just don't have the budget to afford you as a keynote speaker in this scenario we're making up. Um, one of the things you could say was, listen, I understand how, you, you know, your, your budget is your budget. Um, and there was another client that had a similar situation and they found that if they went to the marketing department to supplement the sales department's budget, that stay they created, they, stay yeah. created, stay <laughs> the, creative. See, and I'm telling a story of someone else wow. who had a similar problem. Oh, tell the story and stay creative. Man, you know, th this is so heartening to me because this is something that I never would have thought I could do. Mm. But now that you're breaking it down, mm -hmm. I feel, you know, I'm not going to be perfect at it. That's okay. But I can get in and apply everything I know, yes. and I'm going to be okay. Well, when you have a roadmap and you know where you're going, and you know, just like in a flight plan on an airplane again, you're like, here we are. You know, there's a rapport building. You're great at that. Check. Not too much, not too little. Just like exposition in a story. All okay, right. got it. Next. Ask great questions to find out what the pain points are. Oh, I can do that in my sleep. Next. Next. Present the story as a solution and tell the story of someone else who's you helped. Got it. Overcome objections. That's active listening, coming up with creative solutions. And then the closing is simply, would you like to go on this journey with me? Um, I can check off every box on that. Perf. I know you can. That's why I thought it would be helpful to give you the roadmap and go, oh, now your confidence just went up, didn't it? And hopefully all the people listening as well. I would say that there are going to be people out there who are like natural salespeople, the people who started out delivering newspapers. And <laughs> I don't, my audience may be way younger. Uh -huh. I may be talking about like a distant time in the past. But there is something to be said about the two forks in the road because when you had that job, you looked forward mm -hmm. to meeting with somebody and trying to convince them. Yes. Whereas when I had that job, I spent that time reading in the mm -hmm. newspaper because I got the first look. But here's where the similarities are, whether it was a newspaper or when I was working in Condé Nast, I couldn't wait to get the magazine and read the stories and then talk about the stories to potential advertisers. Because that, without the journalism, there was no new product, there was wow. no content I, to create. So I had to what? love it. In order, that's what I was passionate about. And I can easily flip that around and say, without the sales teams, 
I wouldn't have been able to be paid to write any of that mm -hmm. stuff. I started Esquire 1997. Mm -hmm. When I came into the magazine, David Granger had just been hired. He was at GQ. Mm -hmm. So for him to leave GQ to go to Esquire was like the creation of a civil war. Mm -hmm. First of all, he's leaving Art Cooper, yep. who was the man who put him, in a, yep. put him in a place where he could develop a pool of writers. And now here David was going mm. and leaving GQ to be in charge of Esquire and taking that pool of writers with him. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same thing happens when a publisher leaves one magazine. She typically, he or she takes their sales oh, team yeah. with them. <laughs> okay. So this really was commonplace, although at the time it seemed like it was crazy. Mm -hmm. Crazy. I mean, I can remember when the first issue came out, there were reports that Art Cooper at GQ had gotten a copy of the first issue of Esquire under David mm -hmm. and saw it before David did. Oh, gosh. Like, like, there was all this yes. subterranean There's stuff. There's a movie. You're, making, you're telling a great movie. It, exactly. So you could see what was, what was happening here. Mm -hmm. And at this point, Esquire was in such bad shape. There might have been only nine pages of ads mm. in the whole magazine, and most of it was sexual enhancement, oh or cures for baldness uh -huh. that, that didn't work. And what I learned to do at that point, I would get the magazine and I would count the ad pages uh -huh. because it was the ad pages that were going to determine sure. whether the magazine was going to be successful. And all of a sudden I could see month after month, mm -hmm. they were growing yes. and growing. You were in the right place. Yeah. Well, I remember when I was working at W Magazine, the big issue for all the fashion magazines is September. And the editors would talk to the publisher, not the salespeople, and say, how many ads do you think you're going to sell? Because that means we can have more stories and more content. We, so we could have another shoot if we think we're going to sell this many more ads. There'll be money to hire the photographer to go on location. And that gives us another six or seven editorial pages in the fashion well that can't exist without X number of ad pages additional being sold than what were sold last September. So there was a definite awareness that there was a complementary synergy going on. And what I love about what you said about the wall between church and state and editorial and, and sales, and even in your mindset of your identity, is you interviewed Gorbachev. And that famous line that Reagan said, Gorbachev, let's take this wall down. Right. So Cal, you and I are taking this wall down oh, all these years man, later. we're tearing down the wall. <laughs> <laughs> It's stunning to me to think how much out there is reduced to silos mm -hmm. where people cannot get to the other side of walls. And that's got to be a terrible, terrible situation in this day and age where the internet is basically mm. just flattened the wall. So basically there are no walls there, but your silos may still be there. So many companies I work with experience silos within departments, or they're all in sales, but they're selling different products and they aren't sharing their success stories. So when that happens, because you work in this region or you sell this product, we never hear about your successes and we don't have any new stories to tell our clients because we're siloed. And so when we break those walls down and have a shared way, the technology is certainly there to share information, of success stories that pop up, everyone's morale gets lifted because the company's doing well. Even if my particular division is behind on its quota for the month, at least I know somebody else has had a success and that inspires me to go tell that story if I don't have a new story myself. It would seem to me that every company should have a way of collecting its stories. And the first place that you wanna get your success stories to is sales. Yes. Because that's going to increase your revenue and make you better able to do whatever you want to do. Exactly. And yet you rarely see it. Yes. And because people don't realize the big picture and everyone's just focused on what their tasks are and they, and the more people see what their job is doing and contributing to the overall wellness of the company, the more loyal they are because they feel appreciated. And they're not just a cog in the wheel. 
And the best way to do that is to have a company story that everyone's, this is our mission, this is what we're doing here. And whether I'm in shipping or accounting or customer service or whatever it is, everyone's working towards that mission. But if people don't have a mission and a story in their head, there's no purpose for what they're doing except a paycheck. Cold calling mm. is something that people tend to fear. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if people answer the phone anymore. So <laughs> is there even anything to fear in cold calling? <laughs> well, the concept of cold calling can be a lot of things. I mean, I know some Beverly Hills real estate agents that will go with a partner. And I think not going it alone is really a key factor there. Um, and knock on doors, asking people, are you planning to sell your house? I've had that happen. Yeah. So that takes a lot of courage and guts. So people still will- I'm like, what? Yeah. Because all it takes is one out of 100 or however many they have the to sit. The numbers with. game. Yeah. Also, what I've learned from my sales career, my own journey of working for myself, is rejection. The fear, again, of rejection stops people from cold calling. So if you're afraid of a no, it keeps you from taking risks. And I say the key to not fearing rejection is to never reject yourself. So I, when I would call on a client that I hadn't normally, you know, they have endemic advertising and non-endemic advertising. So if you're in a fashion magazine, anything that's fashion related is considered endemic, right? It's no shock that guest jeans might want to run in a fashion magazine. However, right. a car company or a hotel, that's not a given. So you would have to stretch yourself to go call on non-endemic advertisers that aren't a natural fit with a story. And you're going to get some no's and no, not now, and all of that rejection stuff. So after someone would say, yeah, you know, we're going to go with Vanity Fair or Vogue instead of W. My head, I used to think, oh, I wonder if another salesperson could have gotten a yes. Maybe they're right. Maybe those other magazines are better than what I'm selling. I'm rejecting myself and my product. Ooh. So I'm taking the rejection personally, and I'm rejecting myself. But when you say, oh, that's just not a fit for who they want and the audience they're targeting, but we are a fit for other people, and I'm not rejecting myself as a bad salesperson because I got a no. So the not less, me, not me. So the less you reject yourself and what you're doing, then the, you aren't as a, you don't take the rejection so personally, and that's how you're free of that fear. Going from door to door and asking if people are going to sell their houses, <laughs> I, I'm wondering what that would do to somebody's mind because you got to know that when they answer the door, they're probably not going to be happy. Right. And they're going to tell me no, and they're going to tell me get out of here. And you know that going in. So does that actually help you overcome a fear of rejection? Because you know what's coming. The odds. Well, that concept of, the, you know, the full of brush men that went door to door and things like that. And now with technology, instead of phones, people are using emails to do some cold calling. And again, whoever tells the best story gets the yes or gets the referral. So if we go back to, in a subject, what is your subject line in a cold email to someone that makes them even want to open it? Probably some question or something that their brain is going, hmm, I'm curious about this. If you're knocking on a door and say, hey, you're planning to sell your house, then you're going to get a lot of no's. But if, you, if you're knocking on doors and you come up with a story of, did you know your neighbor two blocks over just sold their house for the record amount? Would you like to know what that is? <laughs> I sold it. For them. And I, you know, I just thought you might want to see what how valuable your house is right now. It might be more than you think. And and that has turned it into a conversation. Of something and a for them. Right? You've given something to them that they didn't know. Yep. They're grateful for it. And it's not going to end with get out of here. Right. It's, you know, let me get your card. It's the whole goal of a really great elevator pitch, which everybody needs and few people have, is to intrigue people enough when they say, hey, what do you do at a cocktail party or an event? And you answer that question so interestingly in a way they haven't heard before that they say, huh, tell me more. So when someone says, what do you do? It's not an invitation for a 10-minute monologue. So when someone says to me, hey, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm known as the pitch whisperer. I give keynote talks on how to go from invisible to irresistible. And when that happens, people's business takes off. Tell me more. They're like, what's a pitch whisperer? <laughs> <laughs> and I have a whole series of answers to that, right? Well, much like a horse whisperer, I help people um, with their confidence and calming them down before they get up in front of people. And I help them answer those three unspoken questions that everybody asks when you pitch anything. Open loop. 
What are those three unspoken questions? Oh, but I get permission. <laughs> this is genius. Well, you know what? As I said at the start, I learn so much <laughs> every time I sit with you. Likewise. I can't wait for the next one. And we have torn down that wall once and for all, or else the wall that existed only in my mind, hmm. it's just gone. I'm done with it. Nice. You've just given me the framework on how to get from a place of starting, which I would feel comfortable with, to the close in a way where I, I can make a nice soft landing. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to be scared of rejection. Uh, in fact, I'm going to embrace this and I'm going to do everything you said. And then I'm going to come back and report to you to let you know how it all unfolded. I'm sure it's going to soar just like all the other things you've done. Well, thanks. We'll, <laughs> we'll see. We want some soft landings, John. Got it. Thank you. Your advice it's going to help a lot of people here. I hope so. That's my mission is to help as many people as possible get off that self-esteem roller coaster of only feeling good if things are going well in your sales and bad if they're not. And the best way I know to get off of that is to realize that whatever the results are, who we are as people is bigger than that. And when you have that mindset, then you're not afraid of rejection and you're out there engaging people and telling stories and knowing that you're going to be magnetic. Magnetic is a nice word to end this on. We will see you down the tracks, brother. Thanks, Cal. That about wraps it up. want to thank Tim Ferriss for imploring me to start this podcast. Tim, you forced me to smash down wall after wall. And you know what? Now, there are no ceilings. All blue skies. This podcast has led me to give keynotes and storytelling workshops that are helping a lot of companies. Tim, everyone I touch to the spoken word is touched because of you. And if your company needs help telling its story, please reach out to me at calfussman.com through Kevin, the manager, because I am here to help, and so is Kevin. I want to thank the folks at My Intent, Sportique and WeWork for getting behind this podcast. For a bracelet that can change your life, go to myintent.org. For the softest hoodies and sweats that you can imagine, you can't even imagine, go to sportique.com. Don't forget, there's no U between the Q and the E. That's Sportique, S P O R T I Q E. And for office space where company meets community, visit WeWork.com and see why I use the space at WeWork to record my podcast, WeWork. Want to thank Luce Fleming for the audio work, Kevin the manager, and Golly Furstenberg back at the office for all they do. And thank you all for listening. Please send me a photo of the city or town where you're getting big questions, and I'll lift a glass to you from L.A. Cheers! Cheers.